0: Can't believe we are already in the 100th episode. Yes, folks, you heard it right. It's already a century. This wouldn't have been possible without the immense support from our guests, listeners, friends, family members, and of course, all our critics. After taking the first step of shaping the careers and lives of students, young professionals, and entrepreneurs by launching the Guiding Voice podcast series on May 17th, 2020, during the peak of pandemic, we never looked back. And it is now trending towards becoming the number one podcast launched from India. So a very big thank you and a heartfelt, sincere gratitude for everyone for being part of our journey and encouraging us to continue this journey. So it gives us immense pleasure to release our 100th episode with the world-renowned scholar, coach, author, and the recipient of Padma Bhushan Award, Professor, Dr. Jagadish N. Sheth. We could have covered any topic under the sky, literally, with the widespread knowledge and wisdom that Dr. Sheth brings to any conversation. In line to TGV's focus areas of mentorship, staying current and always learning mindset, we plan to prick Dr. Sheth's brain on the evergreen topic of advancement in formal education. (laughs) hello hi there welcome to the guiding voice podcast series the guiding voice for a better future this podcast is to help professional students it employees and entrepreneurs to shape their careers dear listeners in every episode we interact with industry experts or leaders or coaches or academicians or scholars across the globe to drive some insightful conversations that will help our audience learn great things. Also, we share an interesting trivia or a fun fact about the IT world or technology towards the end. Thank you for tuning in. This is Navin, and with my co-host Sudhakar. So folks, today we are going to discuss a topic, bachelors versus masters. When, where, why? and how. And we are pleased and humbled to welcome Dr. Sheth to our show.
1: Thank you for inviting me, Naveen and
2: Sudhakar. Professor Dr. Jagdish and Sheth is a global personality who doesn't need any introduction, renowned scholar and internationally recognized thought leader for his scholarly contributions in consumer psychology, relationship marketing, Competitive strategy and, of course, analysis. Recently, one of the famous business schools in Bangalore, India, IFIM, has now been rechristened as Jagdish Shed School of Management to honor and build the legacy of Padmabhusan Awardee recipient Professor Jagdish Shed, founder of Shed Leadership Academy. Dr. Shed worked for Emory University, University of Southern California and University of Illinois. Dr. Sheik, welcome to our show.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me, Sudhakar Naveen. Nice to meet
2: you. It's our pleasure, sir. So Dr. Sheik, after achieving so much in your journey so far, what do you consider as the pinnacle of your professional life? Winning Padla Bhushan, when your first book got published, an institute named after you, or the CEOs that you produce to
1: this world? Uh, I think the biggest satisfaction or joy is to unlock other people's potential. I do believe that the real nation's mission is to unlock the potential of its citizens, however they do it. They can do it through entrepreneurship, they can do it through education, they can do it well, however they do it. And that is something that becomes a very meaningful occupation. I believe there is no better occupation than a professor, part leader, somebody who can guide others, because all of us don't see our own potential. It's somebody else who sees the potential. As we know in sports, it's the scout, the coach who finds the potential of a great athlete, and then mentors the athlete, trains them properly. And ultimately, they become exceptional leaders. Here is the nice thing. The athlete is known worldwide, but the coach is not known, which is a key hidden, hidden asset. You have to promote the athlete, not promote yourself. I think that's another key ingredient in any good success by any leader in the world.
2: Wow. Thank you for those wonderful two aspects. One, unlock the potential of other people. And second one, always the goldsmith is behind the curtain and only the end product is visible to the world. Amazing, sir. Thank you for that. So, sir, how is the management education different in India versus abroad? You know, can you please throw some light around its evolution and what you think is the future, especially in this connected global world? Two or three observations.
1: The first one is that in India, since independence, We emphasized medicine and education. That was the platform for the first government. Management was still relegated to what we call commerce, BCOM degree, UGC governance, which is the old British system. And a degree in commerce really goes back 100 years or longer under the British system, the German system. They wanted to create accountants primarily. That's how it began. It became eventually a business degree or a management degree, broadening it out. I think there has been a societal sort of a lack of interest in management at one time. It was considered like a trading occupation, accounting, you know, as opposed to medicine which saves the life of the people, you know, a suffering patient, and of course engineering that creates enormous new infrastructure for an industrializing society. I think because of that overshadowing of the other two disciplines, engineering and medicine management was in the background this has changed dramatically in the 90s for the first time we find that many majors other than engineers that well engineers themselves need management which is why we came out with a structure of iits and then IIMs immediately so to one extent and every IIT graduate who does very well as the CEO of a large company or a top scientist going into the academic world always values the management two years they did at any one of the top management institutions, whether those are IIMs, government or private industry. You know, there are so many good in- institutions in non-government enterprises also. So I think I think management education is becoming much more in the front right now. That's one point. Management education has changed over time from the days we created the PGDM or MBA program as they call it, which was designed to train engineers to understand how an organization works in which they will be working. So learning the basic language of management, such as economics principles of, you know, supply and demand, double accounting system uh, of accounting, they don't teach in engineering any of that stuff. So given that, there is a lot of pressure by the industry on the government to say, can you start a degree, MBA, for example? right after graduation. That is what we still have it in India. This has changed over time because more recently, it is more experienced person, somebody who gets their undergraduate degree, goes out and works for a few years and then does their MBA. And that's because the hiring has changed, recruiting has changed. At least in the U.S., 75% of all our management graduates or MBAs actually work for two industries only, for which it was not designed even. One is consulting, especially strategy consulting, and the other one, of course, is uh, investment banking. So the degree was designed for you to be working in a corporation, but now you are working as a consultant. That change is happening in India, but not to the extent yet. Ours is 75% in those two industries. In India, it may be only about 30-35%, but more and more we see that shift. Now, in the shift... Surprisingly, the interest is more by non-engineers now. So our student applications are getting more and more diverse in the process because after as a consulting, you are a revenue generator for a company like a McKinsey or Boston Consulting Group or any one of the names. You are a revenue producer, therefore your compensation is very high, just like a salespeople's compensation will be based upon performance and all that stuff. And of course, your career path is very fast. You can become a senior executive very soon, the consulting organization. And then also you've been hired by a company that you are a consultant to, an enterprise to say, we will hire you. So career path is much faster, both places. Investment banking is even more because you get fees paid for these big mega mergers and acquisitions. <laughs> I mean, those fees are ridiculous. So now there's an attraction to go into management by all disciplines, not just engineering. And that's the key changes that I see in the management degree, the first point. India and us, I think the key difference is we have a very talented pool of people. As you know, the exams that we have for entering, IIM exams, for example, a CAT or whatever they call it, Uh, or IMA exam for management, you know, to admission. There are many examinations. Our pool is so large that we can pick and select. For one management seat or a PGDM, you may have 10,000 applications. So here is the irony. Some of those who get rejected in India come abroad. (laughs) Very interestingly. (laughs) So then they apply to top American universities or top UK universities or Australia because they couldn't get the admission. And in India, the education is still very affordable, very affordable compared to the education that we give around here. I mean, the difference may be as much as nine to 10 times. And ours is bundled with residential hall, living together on the campus, here, that is unbundling, so the cost of living is very high. So I think given all that, there are significant differences in who comes. Second major change I find, or a third change in India, is that in India, typically, you have a software engineer nowadays, as opposed to mechanical engineer, industrial engineer. And the software engineer, like in two, three years, says, I don't want to do coding anymore in my life. <laughs> I don't want to supervise coders in my life. I want to aspire to become a manager. And the best way is to actually do my PGDM two years or ISB offers one year even, right? MBA, just becoming more popular. And within one year, I can invest my money, whatever it is, and now I become manager or go abroad or something like that. So their aspirations are becoming much more achievable out of India
0: now. Amazing insights, sir. I think these are some candid thoughts out there. Thank you for sharing them so openly. Here comes my question Uh, What do you like most about the current education system for management students? Because you have been in the professorship and been part of the academics for the last several decades. So, what do you like most about the current generation?
1: i think in india we are having the old curriculum which is very valuable three terms in a year six terms because of that you can give more knowledge across many subjects or in-depth in one subject. You can do either of them, possibly, because you have six terms now, pretty much, and you can design courses for each term. I think that's a key advantage. When we went to a semester system, we lost that time, pretty much. More longer in a course, but not too many courses we can offer. Second thing is that India is clearly going, moving the world, actually, leading the world in specialized MBAs. This is for the MBA side, primarily. And I'll come to the undergraduate BBA in a moment, very clearly. So you can get more super-specializations are coming out of India. Surprisingly, they're coming also more out of the continental Europeans, like Spain, for example, which is a world-class institutions ranked among the top 10, 15, and they're offering more specialization. We, today, need the more specialization. That's clearly one where India is leading, surprisingly, worldwide, because we are allowed to do those experiments Within the guidelines of the ICT or EGC, whatever it turns out to be. I think that's one key difference. Second difference, which is much more interesting, that. Jackson, the school that is named after me. One thing that uh, Atish Chattopadhyaya has done as a director, very important one, you immerse in experiential learning wise much more. So you now are asking students who come from a pretty wealthy family or affluent family, upper middle class at least, to say go and live and breathe in your first semester with the villages, with people in poverty, people who have a different life, their survival mode, and live and learn and learn for a lot. To me, that that injection into that real world, not the same world that you grew up at, a different world, which you avoided all your life, the school or the university is now making it mandatory. So suddenly you transform yourself. It's not classroom knowledge. It is just field ex- experience. And you suddenly say, my God, I never saw the world. So you get a more empathy dimension. One of the key problems with the business education is that we make business education as a capitalist enterprise. Only thing in life in business is to earn profits for the shareholders, whereas the business is never run by shareholders. It's an ecosystem of customers, employees, for example, community, definitely, you know, and then uh, suppliers. So it's five major stakeholders. Investor is just one. So suddenly you begin to broaden your knowledge. You have that empathy dimension that comes in that becomes very valuable, which is, I think, one of the reasons why in India we bring about very world-class world leaders. I mean, look at the number of people of Indian origin who are leading world corporations not just in silicon valley but across everything that's because of that early education that we gave besides the technical engineering education i think that's the second major key change super specialization then focus on societal problems up front understand them what they are so it's a part of your sort of a socialization of giving values third thing is that the indian education is learning from different models from different countries of the world. While America dominates clearly in the MBA program, but today there are some very excellent models out of England, Netherlands, Australia, uh, continental Europe, German, etc. Each one is doing their own way and we are saying we are agnostic. doesn't matter where it comes from. Let's pick up the best practices and try to understand and how do we localize it to the Indian context. I think those are very key, key factors. So our institutions are still in a learning mode. They want to improve even, you know, still continues the journey of excellence, whereas other institutions in the Western world are more mature, and therefore they're more structured, more set in their ways. And bringing about a change is much more difficult, except in a crisis like COVID or COVID-19 or pandemic, where we all had to change around here, learn how to teach online, for example. And online is a very key area. India will be one of the largest, largest online education provider in the world. And I do believe that India has the potential to become the education capital, online education capital for the world because the next major market that needs college education is Africa, parts of Middle East, Gulf countries, Southeast Asia. They don't have institutions in their own places they're not allowed to travel outside restrictions don't have the money so education has to go where they are essentially which today with the platforms that we have like the zoom and other platforms that we have one can provide education on a global basis part of india has the as the as the as the hubbing place And it can be not just Indian universities, but world universities can hub in India because the instructor cost, cost of assistance, research people is much lower in India as it is in the IT services, as it is in accounting services, any kind of a professional service. So India has a huge, huge relative advantage.
0: That's amazing. Like, I think this conversation is going very well based on the kind of research that you have provided and I completely conquer on the empathy aspect of it and uh, whatever the jackson uh, IFMB school is doing in, in terms of uh, getting uh, the students exposed to some of the environments which they have not been part of it. And definitely, I'm also optimistic about India becoming the education capital. In fact, I've gone through your recent uh, webinar on uh, digital universities. Is it the time for it right excellent thoughts shared by yourself. Thanks. Here comes my next question. What should management students focus on learning Okay, beyond what is being taught in the these schools yeah. in order to have a bright career? Uh,
1: this is an excellent question because if you look at the start of the MBA program, we thought social sciences economic sociology behavioral sciences mathematical sciences would be the foundation knowledge that you must have like core knowledge which is great for the industrial age clearly you needed them but we are moving toward a digital age permanently and in the digital age you need different fundamental knowledges So my view is that every MBA, and this is a very radical view, my view is that every MBA must learn how to do data mining. The future is data is like the new oil, as they call it. You know, in the industrial economy, oil dominated. Now the data will dominate. You need to be be totally comfortable analyzing the data, organizing the data, storing the data, manipulating the data. And that skill set is beyond statistics per se. We teach statistics and calculus, but that's not necessary as much as how do you do data mining to get insights out of the data, essentially. I'm even more radical to say every MBA student or every undergraduate business must know coding. Who said coding is left to the software people? (laughs) (laughs) Coding is a basic necessity now, you know? Third thing is that do you know how to communicate with digital media, especially social media? There has to be a required course about learning how to communicate through social media because there are do's and don'ts on social media. One little comment on a Twitter can destroy your career. You need to learn the etiquette of what to do right, wrong, etc. And you require a formal education about how to not only use social media, but rather the do's and don'ts of social media. I think that's very key. And many students don't have those. Especially in India, one of the things we don't train them in high school, except in ID curriculum primarily, we have, because our students are more note-takers, learners, you know, rather than challenging, communicating. So our communication skill, even though we are very smart, bright people, is not to the level in high school as communication skill in advanced countries. So in order to ramp up the communication skill, it's absolutely essential that the students learn how to communicate because communication is the major, major way to influence investors, customers, society, community, or suppliers by and large. So communication in the digital age is a very key foundation. So things like that have to change for us to prepare for the future, not for the past.
2: So, sir, you were talking about the initial part of post-Indian era education, where the focus was primarily on medicine and engineering, and then came the next wave of uh, educational focus on MBA. And even now, if you see, if you ask for the professional career for any individual who is in the the 10th grade, the automatic choices are like medicine, engineering or chartered accountant, right? It That's is right. like a, in a recent movie in Telugu, they say it is more like the broiler uh, chicken, like all are the same, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that is a famous yes. dialogue. So, sir, in India, as of now, the percentage of uh, research scholars are low compared to the advanced countries in the West, right? right? so what is your advice to the current generation of students on overall research scholarship and the focus on research
1: i think it's very important for the students themselves to be researcher because it's the same excitement of creating new knowledge as a new invention if you know somebody can come out with a new invention, he or she gets excited. Whether it's in the laboratory or putting some gadget together, and during pandemic, people became so creative. They had to improvise, and they came out with so many new ways of doing things, whatever it is. I think research is the same way. Suddenly, you get a eureka moment, aha! Never thought about it. New perspective. I think that excitement has to be created in students as soon as they join college. In fact, during high school even, our high schools are quite mature especially in the U.S. In order to get admitted into a top university today, you not only have to do the AP examination courses or your regular grade point average, but you have to do community service, you have to invent things, you have to show leadership, etc. So they are quite mature about thinking about new ideas. So the job of a student and this institution is not only to make the student a learner of existing knowledge, but the creator of new knowledge. And we underestimate how much capable the young person is at age, age 18 or 16 even, they're very capable of creative things. We just don't allow them, once they come to the college, to say, we are the experts, you are the learner, just listen to us, take the notes, as opposed to saying, how can I get more invention or creativity out of you? Except in creative classes, like in, you know, music or writing, etc. they'll be there, but not in management. So how do we put that attitude the day you join the university as the undergraduate for a business program, BBA, or for uh, BCom even, for that matter, And in India, the opportunities are fantastic. And I know I'm just articulating. I tell you, my excitement in India is consumer products primarily, surprisingly. Every street corner has a vendor who in the back of their house makes great South Indian, Italy, Dosa, Vada, whatever it is, or North India, Chapati, whatever they do. And people line up in the morning. Now, what if I take that unbranded product, make it branded, for example, scale it up from a manufacturing viewpoint because he or she has a limited capacity, to do that recipe and I can come out with thousands and thousands of new consumer products. Excitement in India is that 60% of all of our consumption even today is unbranded products. How do you make it branded? And again, the same thing, more than 70% of the trade is unorganized trade. We do get the modern retailing now. We do have the big bazaars and we have the flip carts of the world. You know, that's all organized retailing, but that's still small percentage. So I can invent after invent and you can reward the student for coming out with ideas, business plans. So what it says is that it's not just the entrepreneurship that we all talk about quite a lot or innovation, but it is built into every class, every curriculum to have students do research projects and get out more out of them to say, write a paper on this thing. So they synthesize the knowledge, they collect the knowledge, and they come out with a aha moment on their own. It's very possible. I think we underestimate the potential of human beings. And can I add one more thing, if you are okay? Absolutely, time-wise?
2: Absolutely sir. Please.
1: And I find fascinating, and i will said this many times before, if you take a grain of wheat, which is an agricultural commodity, and make it into a loaf of bread, the value add is only three times. One third of the cost of the bread is the raw material. If you take a rough diamond and a good diamond cutter will polish and get the brilliance out, value add is about 15 times roughly. Rough diamond value versus the value add finished diamond. But if you take a human being, mentor, educate, polish, the value add is infinite. That is the power of countries like India. It is its human capital which needs to be polished, which needs to be invested, which needs to be mentored to unlock their potential primarily. And if you unlock their potential, they will unlock potential of so many others, including the nation's own potential itself. So there's nothing like a human capital, in my view. That's what we are in the business world. We we need to encourage research side as much as we can encourage learning side and also, by the way, teaching side. Students can be brilliant teachers who say that only professors know how to teach. It is interesting. So, and last comment I will make is that ultimately what matters is learning obsession. Learning through teaching, because the best way to learn is to teach. That's what I've learned all the time, by learning new subjects, by teaching them over and over again. The best way, in fact, is to learn, is to do research again, same thing, some new area that you don't know. And ultimately, the saying is very important. If the student is ready, the teacher will show up, which means you can learn from anybody. You can learn from peers, as we do in the classrooms nowadays. You you can learn from the professor, but you can learn from the trees, you can learn from your siblings, you can learn from mountains. And that's a great saying, which means it's your aptitude of learning as a student that makes all the difference. If you come to the college with the expectation that in two years of PGDM or four years of undergraduate, you're looking for a job and everything you are doing from a career viewpoint, it is going to be dysfunctional and will be suboptimization. optimization Career will come. In fact, if you have a passion to learn, the employer will recruit you more because he or she knows there is a person not with set views but constantly adapting and changing to the
2: environment. So learning passion is very important in recruiting students. Amazing thoughts so far. You know, you talked about the three times value of from raw product to, you know, end product, from wheat to bread, 15 times for a rough diamond to a polished one. And you talked about the unlimited opportunity from the human capital standpoint. Double-clicking a little bit on that question, uh, the topic that you touched upon, you know, learning. What inspires you to continuously learn and contribute to various, you know, forums like international journals or your students or your thoughts in your books?
1: I finally figured out what keeps me going even at this age. It's just the obsession to learn. There's so much out there to learn. In many ways, it goes back to our older Vedanta days, somehow. There were gurus sadhus who gave up everything in search of learning and having an omnipotent knowledge whether it's hinduism jainism actually talks about it in a significant way and buddhism again does the same thing you achieve nirvana when you have a self-enlightenment and that comes through contemplation through learning and i believe additionally not only just learning but teaching others because in the process you learn better the feedback mechanism by and large. I think so long as you continue having that passion to learn, you also acquire longevity. You are driven by your own passion. Society does not have to reward you to say, you're okay, you survived, even though you're old now. I think it's your own passion that says, I want to continue my journey hopefully in a peaceful manner, hopefully in a positive manner, etc. And so long as I am a learned person myself, I'll be okay. So there's nothing better in terms of motivation than learning. And I've always I say that making money without meaning is meaningless. I've found many, many very wealthy, wealthy chairmen of the companies or entrepreneurs who are empty inside because they were so obsessed about making money was the only objective in life as opposed to learning, for example. And now they don't know what to do. They don't even know how to distribute that money that they've earned. They're struggling constantly, which is why, again, our ancient values are very right. Greed will kill you. So to for self-preservation alone, the only thing that keeps you going, longevity of your
0: life and hopefully meaningful life is learning. And that keeps me going. That's mind-blowing and eye-opening at the same time. So, sir, you talked about learning from peers, teachers and colleagues. So who is your mentor, if I may ask? Uh-huh. What did you learn from him or her and that stayed with you for long? In terms of,
1: there are three buckets of my learning. The first one has been my own family. I'm the youngest in the family. My two older brothers taught me quite a lot. One was a businessman, so he taught me how to run a business, how to motivate customers, employees, and how to write double-entry accounting system before I went to college. So I accounting was natural to me. Well, we are, I'm a good Jew anyhow. So we are all supposed to be child accountants and it is in our genes, but it was fascinating. So that's clearly one. Uh, My sisters were good teachers to me. Somehow they invested in me and always praised me, gave me courage to say, encouragement to say, you are doing very good in school, continue, you are a very good student. And actually, I do remember my two younger sisters, older than me, but next to me, actually took me on stage and say, you can talk. So I had no stage fright, which is a very good, important, very les like dancers, they have no stage fright, you know. Singers they have no because they've done it very early. I think that helped me. So, besides family, the next major influential person would be my mentor in America. His name was John Howard. He was an eminent professor at University of Pittsburgh, trained as an economist at Harvard, but began to believe marketing is a very good discipline. And he was a very leading personality. And I had the good fortune when I went to University of Pittsburgh to do my one year MBA to meet him, and he basically. He allowed me to be his research assistant and that is the rest of this in fact he mentored me he nurtured me he's the one who asked me to write the book with him for the howardsh theory of buyer behavior which he was thinking about why do consumers become loyal or form a habit for product when economics tells you to shop around all the time they had a beautiful thinking and i joined that one i shifted my major from production surprisingly not even marketing, but to behavioral sciences. In my brother's shop, I really learned quite a lot about motivation, what motivates people. I was always curious. And that was the reason I shifted that one. By the way, back to story about my second brother, which is very important to mention. My first brother, older brother, who was a businessman. My second brother was a philosopher and a scholar. He was very versatile. He was a good cricket player. I mean, he did everything. He was my role model to say, wow, how can I do excel in so many things? And he gave me the view that education is very important. I'm the first one in my family to graduate, first of all. I'm a refugee from Burma. We come from a merchant community. When we had to leave when Japan took over Burma on the way to India, conquering India, we left it and lost everything. Struggled very hard from 1941 to 48. Still remain middle class. And we settled ultimately in uh, Chennai. What is called Chennai? I call it Madras even Madras. today. <laughs> very interesting. So, And that was very interesting interesting. I learned quite a lot there. Dislocations in life, major crises in life, if you survive, builds a strong character. It is that inner character that drives you. So my second brother gave me the philosophy, education, learning. And that was very key. So those two brothers were influential in two different places, business and liberal arts, kind of thinking pretty much, which was very really valuable. Back to John Howard. John Howard was so good to me. I don't know why. He just liked me. So we began to write this book. Seven years it took us I began to challenge him because I got the courage to say, I can tell him what I think so, right? Kind of a notion. Get away from the Indian shine. So... University of Pittsburgh was a private university, wanting to become a major private university like Harvard, MIT, Stanford, Wharton on the East Coast in Pittsburgh. And uh, they brought in all the world-class scholars as a way of attracting students. But unfortunately, it collapsed financially. Uh, They overexpanded, buying out the neighborhood properties, etc. And it collapsed. So John Howard decided to leave to go to Columbia University. And he asked me to go along with him if I can. So I rested up my doctoral education all the examinations etc And then my thesis work was really the theory we were building. So we postponed that. And I went with him to Columbia University in 1963 as postdoc, essentially, or a research associate. And two years, I worked on that book. I was in Columbia Library, which is called, we call it Stacks. And this Stacks is underground. And I would be there seven, eight hours a day, easily pretty much wandering around, looking at books. In those two years, my knowledge jumped enormously compared to what I studied in my doctorate and I brought in that behavioral perspective. So, and that perspective, he did not have. He was an economist, basically. Learned about some psychologists, especially Paul Clark Hall and his learning theory, but there was much broader knowledge. And he very much appreciated it. And ultimately, we came out that book. And by the way, that book was published finally in 1969 called The Theory of Buyer Behavior. And it is now reprinted in India by Wiley. It was John Wiley and Sons publication by Wiley India as its 50th anniversary. 1969 to year 20. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and it's published. We asked many people who knew John Howard. It was supposed to be a tribute for John Howard primarily because he was such a great mentor. I dedicated the book to him also. postuma He's passed away, unfortunately. And all the, all the top scholars wrote about their memories of John Howard and how great a scholar he was. He was very influential life especially on the academic side the third person most influential is i never met only his writings there are many like that but this one really made the difference and that was Abraham maslow he came out with a theory of hierarchy of needs since i was interested in motivation among many motivation theories his theory really stuck with me somehow. And my first paper in my MBA class I wrote was taking his theory and applying to institutions. His theory was for individual growth primarily, you know, from survival to safety, security needs, to love and affection, to self-esteem, independence, and self-actualization. I loved it somehow. I don't know what it is. It's very, it's not well validated even. It's not researched scientifically, but people like it. They think yeah, it makes sense. So I took that theory and applied to institutions, four institutions. And three ones I wrote the paper on. One is the employment as an institution. Other one is the government as an institution. And third one is religion as an institution. And I'll talk about the religion side. If you are at the survival safety needs in a society, I say that you must say God will protect you. God loves you has no meaning. But when safety security needs are satisfied by the government, for job security or by the union labor job security. Now you rise to love and affection. So now the religion has to say God loves you. God protects you has no meaning. Now love and affection is a very short stage. He had never thought about that one. The safety survival is a long stretch. But once you get over that, many people cannot even get over Love and affection is a short transition. Now we have to say because next need is independence and self-esteem. Coming to the temple or a mosque or a church makes no sense to you anymore. You want independence. You don't want Somebody to tell you what to do, you want somebody to support you what you do. So I said now God is with you. Religion has to say, God is with you. Do more what you do. I have my blessings to you. You see what I'm saying? Yep. Because they want to be empowered, they want to be empowered. And religion has to understand that's the change in the need. And the last one, self-actualization, ultimately says, I am with you, I'm in you. God is in you. You are a reflection of God. And therefore, how can you become God-like person? Which is self-actualization. Now that that was just one similar I did for the government. Why in some countries communism appeals, which is usually masses, poverty people. Communism is a better place, and ultimately communism is destroyed through capitalism. That was another institution. Just went on and on. Out of innocence, I wrote the paper, but became well respected. Everybody loved the paper, and that led me to. So I wrote to Abraham Maslow. Here is my paper as an MBA second-term student, my behavioral science class. What do you think? He just loved it. He said I'd never thought of. Doing doing it at the institution level, nation level. I never thought about different stages, like like, self, love and affection is a short stage, self-esteem is a long one, no, safety is a long I mean, he had never thought about that one. And he said, I urge you to publish this paper. <laughs> I never published it, never published it, but he urged me to publish the paper. I still remember that, you know, we used to communicate by mail in those days, pretty much. It was fascinating. He was in Brandeis University someplace, and uh, I always wanted to meet him, kind of notion. He was my hero from my my educational viewpoint. So those are the people who have influenced me. I will add one more thing. I know we are stretching the time, is that I, in my undergraduate, I studied history also as my major along, along with accounting. And more influential subject always has been history biographies of people again back to what is it about that human being who became so exceptional or excellent right it's search for excellence in many ways part of human story so I love biographies of people who have done well or emperors who did well for example you know and what else so so that's history has been the most influential subject on me even today I love history for some reason
0: rather than management per se for history of management I like it better fantastic fantastic sir I couldn't ask for more for our 100th episode I think okay. this is something fabulous conversation and I really love the analogy of uh, Abraham Maslow's uh, law of hierarchy which is still relevant. In fact, I still remember all those uh, psychological safety and, and the basic needs and all that stuff when I studied during right. my MBA and it is still relevant right. and the and icing on the cake is your extension of it with regard to applying to the governments, to the nations, to the religions and all. Mind-blowing. Simply mind-blowing. Right. <laughs> Thank you for sharing all those insights, sir. So, sure. Thank you. So far we have been talking a lot about uh, professional stuff and uh, let's look at the other side of Dr. Sheth and bring in some fun element in this conversation. So are you ready for a quick rapid fire round wherein I'm going to ask you five questions. You can answer very quickly. All right. So first thing is related to profession only. Like what's the one thing that you enjoy most about your profession?
1: Influencing others, getting more potential
0: out of other people. Wow. Simply nailed it. Second one, if you were given a chance to change something in the management education throughout the world, what would you do?
1: Add more empathy, select students not just on exams and the tests and the grades, but talk about the passion they have and how businesses and institutions can serve the society.
0: Wonderful. And this is a very apt question for a person with a very good charisma and all, right? And having seen so many tides in the life, do you believe in luck?
1: Oh, I definitely believe in luck. In fact, I believe in superstition as a very positive force. I'm supposed to write an article. We poo-poo superstition, but superstition arises because all athletes are superstitious. No matter which uh, match, you know, which, which game they play worldwide there's no cultural differences second most superstitious people are entrepreneurs because sometime by sheer association you did very well in your batsmanship or a bowling team you didn't imagine you could do it and you linked it with something you touched something you you know whatever you did and that association gets so you're in the zone now with that same kind of a superstitious thing you get more potential out of you by having that association you call it I'm in the zone today right athletes always say I didn't even know I could perform so well so that's what I believe so I believe in superstition
0: very much (laughs) (laughs) interesting so here comes my next one what is the worst thing that you have bought so far
1: oh yes (laughs) (laughs) It's I in many, many years ago, maybe 45, 50 years ago, there was a AM FM radio in America, FM radios, just like India has come clock radios so on top of that, having clock inside. I shopped for that. I must have spent weeks and weeks buying, thinking about this or that, going to the store, all this stuff. And I it's like 40, 50 dollars. I never imagined time I spent with thousands of dollars just to shop that thing. It's the worst choice I ever made by choosing and looking at too many options. So the best thing in life is choice reduction. Very quickly, get to the point, make a choice and be happy.
0: Amazing. Uh, so what was your first electronic gadget? Was it the same thing or anything else? <laughs> My first electronic
1: gadget actually was a radio. You are right, correct. Yeah. Yeah, I came in India when there was still television was that's coming in, we had the Philips big radios. Remember, with all the knobs and everything, yeah. short shortwave radio or AM because we did not have FM. So when I came to America, radio was my first thing I need to have, and then followed by television.
0: Obviously, America, you know. Great. So here comes the last one for the rapid fire. Do first impressions matter? Mm-hmm.
1: I think they do, but it depends on keen sense of observation. If you have acquired a keen sense of observation, the first impression is so holistic without any judgment or a bias with which you're looking at that phenomenon. You observe more real world as it is and therefore it matters a lot.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much for being so sport and answering rapid fire questions sure. and over to you Sudakar. Sir, thank you so much for all the
2: conversations so far. It has been phenomenal to say the least. One final question for this conversation. What will be your one piece of advice to those who aspire to make big in their careers?
1: I think the best advice one can do is to giving back to the society what society has given to you so far. The more you give back, however you do it, the better your career. It's uncanny, it's uncanny. If you give back after your career, it's not as meaningful as giving because what happens when you are giving back to the society through community service work, you know, however you do it, you create a network of people which is beyond just the network of alumni, your student colleagues, etc and the broader network always helps you out in your career eventually. So it's a very practical advice. Giving back gets you a lot more into a more ecosystem and we survive and grow only in an ecosystem,
2: not individually on that amazing thought of giving back to society at the right time which resonates so well with our thought process for the guiding voice we want to thank you for all the great stuff that you have shared in this last 45 minutes or so we really appreciate you taking time for us and a couple of things that will stay with me for the rest of my life I'm sure is one having that empathy because that is so 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 prudent and so contextual and the abraham maslow's hierarchy of needs and the way you picturized it with employment government and religion how the same thing changes with the evolution and same thing changes with the context from God protects you to God loves you to God is with you to God is in you I I, I was just thinking that maybe the the (laughs) nirvana stage is I am the God (laughs) but you know really appreciate all your pearls of wisdom that you shared with our audience Uh, personally Naveen and I are indebted to your
0: time for you know this session thank you so much thank you for inviting me it was a joy thank you so much sir you have been very humble and we are obliged and extremely pleased I would say I am on cloud 9 that we could make this episode and release as part of our 100th episode thank you so much again thank you bye bye And folks, if you have liked this episode, please share with at least three of your friends or colleagues for whom you care for. Because the Guiding Voice podcast series is a purely not-for-profit venture and our team puts in a lot of effort to bring the best conversations to all our listeners and our purpose is very clear we want to provide curated guidance to all the professional students out there be it from engineering b schools and all the it employees and entrepreneurs so that all of you can make informed decisions based on the insights that are driven by the industry experts coaches leaders or academicians across the globe because if you share this with your friends it helps them also learn great insights from every episode or if you are listening to the guiding voice podcast on the apple podcast please do not forget to leave a review and a five star rating because every rating will help us expand our reach and contribute to our mission to shape the careers and lives of millions of people across the globe and if you are watching the episode on youtube please do not forget to hit the like button and subscribe to our channel. And last but not the least, I want to reiterate, please share with at least three of your friends or colleagues. Thank you so much in advance. Alright, so it brings us to the trivia segment of today's episode. So folks, today's trivia is about PayPal, one of the companies founded by Elon Musk. And you know, it was treated as a worst business idea in the past. Yes, you heard it right. In 1999... (laughs) PayPal got the title of worst business idea, bringing in a lot of criticism for the founders. Interesting, isn't it? Thank you for listening. There is more in store, folks. Stay tuned. Take care. Be safe. Until next time. Bye-bye. And we are signing off for today.